Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. And let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, we would give ourselves to this passage and um, help us understand it, help us apply it. Come by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, we usually take a chapter at a time, um, but this is quite a long chapter and it's got several sections which are significant. And uh, so all I want to do this evening is look at the first 13 verses, uh, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Don't be confused about the section break in the English Standard Version. You can just ignore those if it helps. Sometimes it helps to ignore them. And we're going to read down to verse 13. And you remember that uh, Solomon has just built the, uh, the temple, built his palace, filled the temple with furnishings. And chapter 8 is all about the dedication of the temple to the Lord. So uh, we're just going to look at the first 13 verses. Let's hear God's word. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came And the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in. Forever. Well, building projects are always interesting for churches. Uh, at some point in their existence, local churches usually set about some sort of building project to build a house of worship. And uh, it can be quite a painful experience for a, a church, a congregation, um, but once it's finished, you know, it's a time of great celebration. And a time of great joy. 
but the real question that's, that needs to be asked with a project like that is what good is a building if God is not present? What good is a building if God is not present? And you know, you could have a, a very nice building, very comfortable building, with uh, very comfortable chairs and carpeting and all the rest of it, and well appointed in so many ways. But what good is it if the most important thing, the presence of God, is missing? And and what that reminds us of is that the church needs to crave above all things the, the presence of God amongst us that uh, we need to look to him and to see him doing his multifaceted work amongst us uh, as a congregation as individuals as we grow in grace uh, we want to see God present amongst us and doing all these things and biblical history has examples of times when God has withdrawn his presence from his people uh, because of their sin and rebellion. One example of that is 1 Samuel chapter 4, you know, a couple of books backwards. And uh, at that, that time Samuel is a prophet and he's, uh, he's proclaiming the word of God to the people of Israel. And he's, you know, he's peripatetic, he's traveling around and he's ministering and exercising his role as a judge and he's, but he's a prophet of God and he's speaking the words of God to people and yet the people are ignoring the word of God and uh, they're sim- simply doing their own thing they have a kind of pride about them that means that they just do what they've always done and they uh, continue with their traditions um, and here's the problem uh, the Philistines defeat them in battle in 1 Samuel 4 and capture the Ark of the Covenant. The, that gift from God that, but through Moses that was to be carried with the people. And uh, the, the Ark has been captured and taken off to a foreign land. And there's a, a little cameo picture at the end of 1 Samuel 4 of a woman who called her son Ichabod which means the glory has departed. And it seems to be to sum up the situation for Israel that with the the removal of the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God had also departed from the people. That God had withdrawn his presence from his people and left the people to their own devices. Well, this, this question of whether, whether God is present amongst God's people is at the center of this passage that we just read. And this is what I want to consider with you this evening, the, the presence of God amongst his people. What are we to make of the presence of God amongst his people? What are we to, are we to crave, are we to look for, and to pray for the presence of God amongst his people? So I want to just try and unpack this in in four points this evening. And uh, the first point is this, um, and something we touched on in chapter 6, and that is that what we're seeing here is a, new, is a period of a, a new rest for Israel. A new rest for Israel. Um, and, of course, it's a time of great, uh, great celebration. You know, the, the, the building's been completed. The temple's been finished. Uh, seven years of hard work of carrying all the materials from 
uh, from foreign lands to bring it all to Jerusalem, to build this temple, this marvelous temple. And more than that, the, the promises that God had made to Solomon's father David about the building of the temple have now been fulfilled. And they have this great place of worship at the center of the city and amongst the people of God. And this celebration is is marked by a vast assembly of people. All the the men of Israel, at least, seem to have come and assembled. And they're offering huge numbers of sacrifices. You look at verse 5. The king of Solomon and all the king congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered that's a vast number Uh, so many that you can't count them and truly this is a, a national event that's happening for the people of Israel a thing of great significance for the whole nation and what's So what's happening here? What's happening here? Well, we noted back in chapter 6 how the narrator of the book of Kings mentions that it's... So chapter 6, verse 1, he mentions that it's been 480 years. It's the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt that Solomon begins to build this temple. And what we noted when we're in chapter 6, is that what's being marked out here is, in a sense, the end of wilderness wandering for the people of Israel. So yes, they've been literally in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. And then they've come into the promised land, but it's not been all plain sailing because they've had to fight their way in. And they've had to drive out various nations And they've been constantly assailed on all sides. So so there's been no rest for the people, even though they're in the land, the promised land. There's no actual rest until Solomon comes. And then there's rest on every side. And in a sense, the, the building of the temple marks a change of a period of history. If you like, moving from that wilderness experience to that, a time of what you might call rest, at least in the limited historical sense. Rest. And so this temple is a kind of signal of how God has fulfilled all his promises so far to bring his people to rest. And there's another significant factor here. You may have noticed the time markers here. The, what time of the year is this celebration taking place? Well, it's taking place in the seventh month of the Jewish year, which is uh, around about September, October time, our time. Uh, and in fact, more significantly, it's around about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And you may remember how that was a, a feast that was given to the people of Israel through Moses back in so if you read Leviticus 23, 23, uh, 33 to 43, uh, you'll read about that, one of the, the many, one of the three main feasts that Israel was to celebrate. Now what was the point of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, or Booths sometimes it's called? 
was, the point was for the people of Israel to remember that time literally when they were in the wilderness and they were living in tents. And so they'd, you know, I'm sure it's great fun if you're kids. You know, let's go and live in the tent tonight <laughs> and celebrate this week the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they'd have lots of fun about it. And enjoy the fact that God has taken us from slavery to this place and redeemed us. But it's a reminder of that wandering period for the people of Israel. And, and that's significant now because the temple is now being built and that wandering is over. And so the, the, pre, the timing of the Feast of Tabernacles highlights the fact that they're no longer wandering. That they've got established in the nation, in the, in the promised land. And so the whole thing is it's not just about a great building. The whole thing is about the redemption of God. How has God blessed us? How has God helped us? over these 487 years now since we left Egypt and God is continuing with us you know when we, we celebrate things in our, in our modern day it's often superficial isn't it it's frankly quite banal often the way in which we celebrate um, any, you know, any excuse for a party eh? let's just have a party who cares what it's about let's just have a party and have a good time just as long as we're having a good time that's all that matters in the modern world and it's very much in the moment you know, uh, we don't have to have anything particular to celebrate let's just have a good time let's celebrate something I don't, know, don't care what it is and I wonder sometimes if modern Christianity has, has fallen into that kind of habit of wanting a momentary celebration of things and not really knowing what it is but let's have a nice time let's have a good time let's kind of whip up our, our excitement and our emotions and have a good time together but the people of God are to celebrate history and eternity to celebrate all the things that God has done and is doing we're called to think about our lives in the context of his redemptive purposes um, this big picture of God's redeeming his people throughout all the ages. And we are to celebrate that we are part of that, that we've been gathered up into that. You know, and it's not just personal, it's not just my, my, how I feel different or anything like that, which may be true. But it's what he's doing for all his people. There's a corporate aspect to this, there's a universal aspect to this, the church of Jesus Christ. All of it. All that Jesus has done for all his people is a, a, a matter of celebration. And we celebrate not just that we have been beneficiaries, but that God gets all the glory. That God should have the glory. So I wonder if that's your perspective on life. Is that your, the way you think about your life? That your life is part of this people of God here in this local church? That you are celebrating that what God is doing, not just for you personally, but for you and, and the church as a whole, and all the history of it. You know, we can trace our lineage as a Presbyterian church back centuries. It says back to the apostles, but that's another story. 
We can celebrate all of that. And I hope you do. Is that your perspective on life? Seeing your life in the big picture of God's redemptive purposes. Here's the second thing to notice about this passage. And it's to do with the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this, uh, this Ark of the Covenant um, is a piece of furniture for the, for the tabernacle. The, you know, that temporary tent, place of worship that was carried around uh, in the wilderness. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of, I suppose it's about this size, this table here in front of me. Um, it's overlaid with gold. You know, and it has this lid on top, and that's overlaid with gold, and it's got these two um, golden cherubim at either end, and they're looking inwards with their wings inwards, as though they're guarding the, what the, the Ark of the Covenant represents. And, and the Ark of the Covenant here is being brought... and. It, so far, it's been in Jerusalem somewhere, but it's in a temporary place. But now it's being brought formally uh, into the temple. And it's carried by these, uh, these poles that are threaded through golden rings. And the, the poles are golden, overlaid. You know, they're, they're woods made, uh, overlaid with gold. And uh, they were carried with the poles because you want supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant itself. And so the priests would come and lift it on the poles. It was so holy. And, and so the, the Ark is being brought into the temple. Remember, the temple itself is lined with gold. You know, the floor is gold, the walls are gold, the ceiling's gold, everything's gold. And you brought this thing in, this Ark of the Covenant in, and you place it in the inner sanctuary. Now, now, why does the ark matter? Why is it so important? Well, remember I mentioned back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the ark was captured by the Philistines. And the lady at the end of the chapter said that the glory of God had departed from Israel. And it's coincided with the ark of the covenant being taken away from Israel. And the reason for that is that the Ark of the Covenant is symbolic of the presence of God in the midst of the people. But to have the Ark of the Covenant was to be reminded of the presence of God amongst his people. And so if you lost the Ark to your enemies, the people would feel bereft. That they've lost not only the Ark, but maybe lost God. And You know, there's no power in the ark itself. It was symbolic. But symbols have this important function of feeding faith. Um, That's how how baptism works. That's how um, the Lord's Supper works. There's nothing in water itself. There's nothing in bread and wine as we take it. But these symbols feed our faith in the, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the symbols matter to that extent. And this Ark of the Covenant was intended to feed the faith of the people by having it at the center of their worship. And when it's lost, it's lost. But here's the problem with Israel. They had forgotten to seek God, but they still kind of used the the Ark as a kind of 
I don't know, lucky rabbit's foot or something. You know, we'll put it out front of the, the army so that when we go to war, you know, God is with us and he'll, he'll win the battle for us. Except they actually forgot God himself. They thought if they just have the ark in front of them, then they'll, they'll win. That's a problem in 1 Samuel 4. They became superstitious about it. And they've forgotten God himself. And so in a sense, the, the glory of God, of God, though it departed symbolically through the loss of the ark, it had already departed from their hearts, the glory of God. And so God removed the visual symbol to emphasize that fact. And we can see that, that that sort of thing happens too with baptism and the Lord's Supper, where these symbols are, are if anybody begins to see them as ends in themselves, you know, with power in themselves, and you fall into this superstitious approach rather than using them to feed, to feed faith. And you sometimes find that. You sometimes find, I find people coming to me and asking for baptism, and uh, it's a superstitious thing. Yes. Or if they don't have the Lord's Supper, they're somehow missing out on God's grace or something. It's a superstitious attitude towards it. So the Ark of the Covenant is, a, is symbolic of the presence of God amongst them. And here's the Ark of the Covenant. He's, he's coming home and coming to its final resting place in the inner sanctuary. And it represents the coming of God to be amongst his people. This is a beautiful thing. The presence of God amongst his people. It's not just that the temple has been completed, but that God is present. That God himself is amongst his people. And that's always been the intention of God. It's always been his great desire that he should, he should come down from the glory of heaven. And as the confession puts it, condescend, come down. Come down from heaven and have fellowship with his people so that he can be their blessedness and reward. The people are blessed. And friends, that's true today. As true today as it ever was. God wants to come down and be amongst his people. That's a great encouragement to us. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always wants that. He's a God who wants to be known. He's a God who opens the way up for people to come into his presence so that they may know him. And this is the message that's at the very heart of the gospel that appears in the New Testament. It's a message that's been at the heart of biblical revelations since Eden, the Garden of Eden. So, isn't that encouraging? God always wants to be with his people. Just one more thing about this ark. Um, It contains two tablets, uh, verse 9. There's nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Two tablets. What's the significance of the tablets? Well, the law of God is written on the tablets. And they are put in the Ark of the Covenant to remind the people of God that they are in covenant with God. They're not just 
it's not a kind of friendship, you know, kind of vague friendship. It's actually a covenant bond. It's more like a marriage. And uh, these are the stipulations. These are the requirements of the marriage. Uh, the law of God. And, and so the relationship between the people are to have with God is not simply a personal feeling about my relationship to God and a spiritual inward feeling towards God. But it's actually about living in accordance with God's stipulations, how God has given his commands, the Ten Commandments, and we live according to those. That's what God wants. That's the kind of relationship that he wants to establish uh, with us. And if you think this idea of obedience to the law of God is an Old Testament idea and has no place in the New Testament, then I invite you again to think think again. Uh, Listen to Jesus. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. See, Jesus wants us to be obedient to him. He thinks it matters. Because it's an expression of our love towards him. It's not just a feeling. It's it's about how you live your life and how you're going to reshape your life to live according to his words. That's what it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But he gives this promise. He says, when you do that, I will manifest myself to you. In the most amazing ways, maybe ways that we can't explain. He comes into our lives and he makes himself known to us in remarkable ways. It's a promise. Father, Son, and Spirit will come to you as you live in faithfulness to him. And so you see that fellowship that God wants with his people again. Live, live according to my word and I'll come. I'll manifest myself to you. So the Ark of the Covenant represents the, the presence of God amongst his people. And it's a reminder of a very concrete response that's required from the people. Uh, you know, we are able to see enough of God in the symbolism to know what God requires to know his mind, to see his written word, and then just do that. So that's the first thing, the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. But here's the third thing, uh, the presence of God in the cloud, or the glory cloud that appears in verse 10. Uh, You see, the cloud here reminds us that though we can see something of God, not all that can be known of God uh, is, is revealed to us. I'm not sure I put that. Sorry, let me put that slightly differently. Uh, This reminds us that though we can see something of God, it is not that we that it's not all that can be known about Him. So we are allowed to see something of God. He reveals enough of Himself to us, but we mustn't be under the illusion that that's all there is to know that could be known about God. He doesn't reveal everything about us. And this is all in, uh, in the cloud, in this idea of the cloud. Now, the cloud is clearly unusual. It's not like smoke from a fire or burning your toast or something. It's, 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 it's not that kind of cloud. It's, it's a glory cloud. Uh, it's clearly um, something amazing that has happened in the temple itself. It's the, it's the, presence, of, it's the presence of God and it 
looks like a cloud, but it's got glory about it. And I can't really describe it any more than that. Something about it that's just glorious uh, to, to be seen. Such that the, the priests who were in the temple at the time, they had to stop whatever they were doing. All the worship had to, all the formal worship had to stop. Because the glory of God was present amongst them. Well, what about this cloud, cloud then? So if we think back to the ark, the ark reveals the presence of God such that we can respond to him the right way. The, the word of God. The, the law of God. What about the glory cloud? What does that tell us? It tells us something else. It tells us that God is present because you can see it and you can get a sense of the glory of it. But a cloud also conceals, doesn't it? You know, clouds get in the way. Clouds hide things. You know, it's, it's long been part of military strategy uh, for when an army wants to kind of conceal its maneuvers that you set up a smoke screen and you conceal so that the enemy can't see what you're doing, either retreating or, or maneuvering or whatever. And clouds obscure what's actually there. How does this apply to God? Well, we can see, it means we can see something about God, but at this stage we're not able to see everything about God. Uh, we sang earlier in Psalm 97, and if you look at verse 2, and let me quote from the ESV, it says, The Lord reigns, uh, verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Why the clouds and thick darkness around God? Why? Because if we were to see him as he is, we would be consumed. Because his glory is so great. And our sin is so great. That we would be consumed. And so he, he protects us by hiding in clouds and thick darkness. So you see the grace of God in this, that he, see, he lets us see enough of him, but not so much that we would be consumed. And you see, there's a mystery about God, isn't there? There's always going to be a mystery about God. There are hidden thing, things hidden from us that we cannot uh, see. There is a sense in which God, in all his depth and richness, is unfathomable. Uh, do you know what I mean by Unfathomable. I, uh, I remember once when I was a, a boy and uh, our family went on holiday uh, with you know, my parents and my brother and uh, we went out in one of the, in the, it was down at the sea and we went out in one of these pa- pedalo boats it was, I think it was in Spain somewhere and uh, we went in these little boats you know, these pedaling boats and you go out into the bay and you can mess around and I brought my snorkel and my mask and uh, I was about 10 or something at the time 10 or 12 and uh, to my surprise, my dad says, go on, put your snorkel on and, and have a look. Get in the water and have a swim. And I thought, oh, we're quite far out. So I'd never swum in that, that depth of water before. But I did it. And I remember the sense of amazement. And you put your mask on, and you put your snorkel on, and you put your head in the water, and you look down, and you cannot see the bottom. And I, 
I thought, whoa, <laughs> I'm really high up here. And you can see that it's deep, but you cannot see how deep. And you cannot see the details at the bottom. You can't see it. And in a sense, God is like that. You see the depths, but you cannot see how deep. And you cannot see all the details. By the grace of God, he holds it back from you. And that's the kind of amazing thing that the cloud, I think, represents for us. We can see that he's there, but we can't see everything. There's a certain incomprehensibility about God. We, we can comprehend enough to be saved. We can comprehend enough that we can have this fellowship with him. But we really don't know. We're only just paddling in the shallows with God. So whatever you think about God, he is greater, he is better, he is more than you can imagine. And it works both ways, doesn't it? Um, Whatever you think about his love, the reality is greater than you can imagine. Whatever you think about his wrath against sin, it is more terrible than you can imagine. He is greater. We can see that he's great, but we can't just see how great. Well, as we close, let me just uh, alighten a couple of implications for this as a people of God. First, two, a twofold implication. First of, the first implication is this. Notice the simplicity of receiving and believing and acting on what you know of God the law of God on the tablets we need to pay attention to what he has given us now we don't have the law of God on tablets but we do have this we have this book and that's why it's so central to us as a church in its ministry and I hope in, in our lives as well but we need to pay attention to what he's given us uh, to th- believe what he's said and to do what he's commanded Just as Israel was to pay attention to the words of the covenant in the old covenant, so we are to pay attention to the words that are here in scripture. So the simplicity of that, believing what you know, acting on what you know. And the second implication is to recognize that there are things about God that we cannot know. We need to recognize the unfathomability of God and all his ways. To recognize that we cannot see all that there is of God. And that we must, but we must nonetheless continue to trust Him for what we do know. You're not going to know what your future holds in your life. You may have plans, you may have ideas, but you don't actually know how any of that is going to work out. But you do know how He calls you to live as you face everything that you have to face. Because he's given you his word. He's told you what to believe. He's told you what you should do. And so we do that. Recognize that there are things about God that we're never going to know. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul encapsulates this in the New Testament. Uh, I think in in that famous saying in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Anybody who pretends they can see God is a fool. We walk by faith. Faith in what? Faith in what he's revealed to us. Not by sight. We must trust him right now in what he's told us and press on. Let me just close with a little story. story. Um, (laughs) Because you're all tired. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a visitor from, an, from you know, the other church that meets across, across the way here. And uh, for whatever reason, they were, they, that church wasn't meeting that Sunday. And the guy didn't know about that. So he came, turned up and came to our service. Uh, one of our church members grabbed him and says, come to ours instead. And uh, delightful. And uh, so he, he came. And afterwards, he spoke to me. And we had a very delightful conversation um, in many ways. But then he claimed just before the end of the conversation, and it didn't end because of this statement, but he said, I, I enjoyed the service, and I enjoyed the, the sermon, but there wasn't much of the Holy Spirit in the service, he said. And, uh, you know, my first thought was, as if I could control, or anyone else in this room could control the Holy Spirit, as though I had anything to do with that. And, but I think his point was that he couldn't see the influence of the Holy Spirit in the people around him or in his own soul, like he felt he was able to see in his own congregation. And, and what it came down to for him, and I'm not, you know, this is not a criticism of you, what it came down to with this, this fellow was he didn't have this feeling that God was present. I think that's what it came down to in the end. He didn't have a feeling that the Holy Spirit was present. He didn't see people jumping around. He didn't see excited worship, you know, singing. I mean, we do sing well, I think, but, you know, he didn't see kind of exuberant jumping around and loud, noisy worship. He didn't see all of that. He thought the Holy Spirit was absent. And, you know, here's the problem with this idea that somebody who thinks that way wants more than is given to you in the Holy Scripture and doesn't recognize that it's the Holy Spirit's work to take the, that word and actually build it into your life and to apply it to your life. And so at the center of our worship has to be the word of God. Um, but he wanted more than that. He wanted the feelings. He wanted a kind of certain exuberance of experience and so on. Uh, more than he was being given. And I rather suspect that uh, this is the case with, our so- with many of our so-called charismatic brothers and sisters. That they are, and they are our brothers and sisters by the way. But they're looking now for things that really are reserved for heaven. Uh, I was talking to one of the years Laurie this morning about uh, over-realized eschatology. <laughs> you know, the things that belong to the end, people want them now. And actually, they're not for now, not yet. And that's, that's part of the problem. We want God to reveal more of himself than he's already revealed. And we need to be patient. And we just need to give ourselves to the word of God. Be, be humble. Be patient with the word of God. With God patient in our understanding of it and our growing in understanding of it. You see, God has given us his word and he has given us his 
Holy Spirit to help us to interpret and understand it. He illuminates the Word of God. There's plenty of the Holy Spirit here at work amongst us. And the, uh, the evidence of that is in the fruit of the believers and how they serve and love one another. You know, and all of that is enough for us to be going on with. So, give yourself to the Word of God and don't long for things that are not for us yet. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture of the presence of God amongst us. How we long for your presence in our lives, both personally and as a church, that you be doing great and supernatural work amongst us in transforming us into Christ-likeness. So we pray you'd do this for us. We pray you'd help us to believe your word in the midst of troubling times. You'd help us uh, to respond rightly with a desire to be faithful, even though we don't understand where you're leading us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.